Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Good to see everybody with us. I have the panelists here, uh, which I'll be bringing in in a moment. My name is Drew DeGrotto, and I'm up in the Honesdale area, Northeast Pennsylvania. Uh, glad you're able to join us on this day, um, this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, let me bring in the panelists, then we'll get right into our topic. Um, Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Drew. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. And uh, Scott Smeltzer, our program director. Hi, Scott. Hey, Drew. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. A little sluggish. We were sharing that a few minutes ago. So if I, I, if I zone out, forgive me on that. But other than that, I'm doing pretty good. And Jonathan, I think you said you're a little sluggish today, too. There's two of us. How you doing, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm doing good. It's just, I think, maybe a kind of gloomy day outside. It's not super bright. So I just feel like I haven't got going yet, but we'll power through. Well, I got a bright, nice sun over here. I'm going to have to come up to Scranton then. Yeah, yeah. All right. So um, good to see everybody. If you're coming in on the Zoom app, open up your Q&A button or your chat box thing and put in your text message there. If you want to come in using your computer audio, you have that option when you use the Zoom app and just click the little hand icon that's on your somewhere's on that um, program um, control panel. And we'll see that and that'll tell us that you want to come in live. Jonathan will bring you in. So well, when say when I say live, not your video, it's just going to be your audio. Um, if you're coming in on the Facebook page, you know the drill there as well. Just use the, the comment box to give us your questions. Now, we started off when we talked about this in the prep meeting that we didn't have any topic. And so we were going to go into a different area. But then um, one of us has good memory. <laughs> and Stephen reminded us that, no, oh, someone sent in a question. So we're going to deal with that question. And um, uh, I'll let you read it, Stephen. You want to read the question yeah, sure. that came in from CJ? Yeah, so CJ wrote last week and said, can you please discuss Luke 19, 11 through 27? Why did Jesus do what he did in verse 27? What is the central theme of the parable? And that's, that's a good question. We're going to get into that in a minute. But I also wanted to invite everyone else to give us some topics. We want to hear from you. We want to know what it is you'd like us to talk about from the scriptures. And CJ took us up on that when he sent that in last week. So we're glad that he did. So anybody else out there, use the text window in either Facebook or in the app. Or anyone um, like we have people coming in on the recording side of it in the uh, podcast area, which they're not listening to the program live. So if you're, if you're watching or listening to the program through the podcast, go to BibleQuest.tv or BibleQuest.org and use the form there to send in your questions. We're looking forward to hearing from you. So with all of that said, who's starting off with the answer on this one, Stephen? Uh, I'm happy to. So let's have Stephen start us off there. Yeah. Sure. I mean, let's read it first. Um, I'm reading from Luke 19, starting in verse 11. Uh, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling ten of his servants, ten minas, and said to them, engage in business until I come. 
but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. They said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So that's the parable itself. Um, it's notable that Jesus is getting very close to Jerusalem in this parable. That's how it uh, sets it up in verse 11. Uh, he's nearing Jerusalem, and they're thinking that the kingdom of God is about to appear. And so, right and right after this, it's helpful to note that... Um, He's going to have the triumphal entry uh, in Luke 19, verse 28 and following. And it's during the triumphal entry that he's actually going to weep over Jerusalem in the context here. So a couple of things. One is clearly uh, the Lord and Jesus or the judge here um, who are wanting good return from their servants. And you have the resistance of some of the servants here, verses 14 um, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So to CJ's question, it's the people in verse 14 that are referenced later in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So there's a little bit more to this parable. Uh, we're probably used to this parable a little more in Matthew 25, the parable of the 10 talents. Um, so there's a lot of parallels between these two, but there's a few details that are different here in Luke. And so it seems to me that the main point of this parable, uh, one, is just Jesus's authority to judge those who he, he expects a return from, um, which is ultimately all of us. But in particular, because he's, a, he's approaching Jerusalem, there seems to be particular emphasis on the fact that he's coming to his own people, the Jewish people, and that they are the ones who are lacking, who have not returned to him what they should, and there's going to be a judgment that will come against them, perhaps specifically the judgment that comes in the year 70 AD with the destruction of the city. Um, but there could also be a broader application to the final judgment. I mean, we'll all be called to account at the last day uh, before God, and we want to return to him what, what is his. So those are my thoughts. Do y'all have other thoughts or takes on that parable? Before we continue on this, and we'll talk about this for a few more minutes, but let's again reach out to the audience. What we're wanting to do today is just take the questions that you might have on your mind uh, or that you would like to have here discussed, uh, because as mentioned, this was the question we forgot about that was on the chat window. Actually, I didn't see it, so 
I didn't even see it to forget about it, but Stephen remembered it for us. So when we get done with that, we're hoping to see questions from the audience. So please, you can either uh, come in through BibleQuest, as Drew has explained, or on the Facebook page, you can just type it in there and Jonathan will, will see that and get it to us. Uh, so we're hoping for and looking forward to your questions on whatever Bible topic related uh, thing you'd like to discuss today. All right, coming back now is we're finishing up here on the Venus. Other comments, guys? I think also you see the idea of Jesus, uh, his authority being rejected over and over throughout the Gospels by the Jews. And so there's a really similar kind of idea, like verse 27, that's, um, I don't know, pretty graphic in, in chapter 19, um, where he says, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's like you read that and you're like, wow, um, that's extreme. But when you get further into the Gospels, you kind of see that theme keep going of the king being rejected. And so those that reject him being punished. And particularly in chapter 20, there's a, a parable um, kind of similar to the, to the main, uh, the meanest, but a little bit different, at least similar in the ending of it, of the parable of the wicked tenants, where you've got the one that owns the vineyard and he give, uh, leases out his vineyard to some tenants and he goes away. And then whenever he wants to get you know, the produce from the vineyard, he sends some people to get it, but they're rejecting and killing and mocking. And then he eventually sends his son, um, supposing that they'll respect his son, but then they kill the heir, kill the son so that they can gain the inheritance. And in Luke chapter 20, in verse uh, 15, uh, after they, well, in verse 14, uh, they say, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And in verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and just those tenants and give the vineyard to others and when they heard this when the crowds heard jesus say this they said surely not <laughs> um like that that doesn't seem reasonable to at least to the crowds but jesus then turns to scriptures and verse 17 he looked directly at them and he said what then is this that is written the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him so the same kind of idea uh, they're rejecting the one who is rightfully king, the Jewish people are, and so they're going to be crushed um, by that. And you see that kind of play out over and over through the Gospels, particularly in this section when Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem or is nearing Jerusalem and kind of has his final showdown in a way with the Jewish leaders. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, one of the most helpful things whenever we have a question about what is the main point of a passage in the gospels is to read the context as uh, the gospel authors are often putting stories next to each other for a reason. And if you back up and read, or and you keep reading, you'll often see a theme and some some patterns or parallels that will help you understand. Okay. That's the main, this is the main point of this parable. Even if I don't understand every verse or every phrase, uh, you can see the general point. And this is a great parallel to the, the parable of the tenants in chapter 20. Here's a couple of things. Jonathan mentioned the kind of intensity there. He's going to destroy those guys. We'll see that again here in Matthew 22 twice. And you'll also see this in Matthew 22. Every once in a while, there's a parable and you have a little multitasking. Uh, here's the main point, but then here's another point over here. So in the parable of the meanest, what would you say is the main point sum up in one sentence in the parable of the meanest in the parable of the talents? Being, being faithful stewards. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to 
because and it's not criticized, which was like in the talents, the the ten or the the five or the two guy and such. But who's the one criticized in both of those? The one who buries or hides his resources. Doesn't use what he could, and 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 it, in, instead of serving, just tries to not do anything wrong. Not serving is doing something wrong. But uh, then there's that little side point. Some people said we don't want you to serve over in this. So let's just cut, catch a couple notes out of the parable of the wedding feast. You'll remember this one, Matthew 22, king prepares a wedding feast, sent out the servants, kind of like in the vineyards, and everybody, this time they're, we're not interested, we're too busy, uh, got a farm, we did this. But then some take his servants, treat them, and shamefully kill them. Well, the king was angry, sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Uh, he sent, he's invited them to something and they killed his servants. In comes the army, destroys and burns their city. And of course, 40 years after that, what armies are going to come and what city is going to be burned? The Roman army in Jerusalem will be destroyed. Yeah. Uh, the temple, at least, will be burned. Yeah. And then you've got the wedding pieces ready. Uh, the, those invited were not worthy. Go out to the ro main roads and invite as many as you find. And of course, that would represent who? All the sinners, people that, you know, weren't originally invited, I guess. Yeah, so if the Gentiles were the original one, these are, yeah, just go out there. So they gathered everybody in, but then there's one person who comes in and he hasn't put off the old man and put on the new. He just comes in without even getting, without any preparation or change. And he is bound and put and cast into the outer darkness. Uh, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So a side point there, but a lot of these are, are destruction parables. Anything else? All right. So uh, we are, do we have any questions on the chat window yet? Not at the moment. All right. So I'm going to ask somebody who has a verse on their mind among us just to pick that verse and make some comments about it. But first, uh, let's have a trivia game. We're going to guess how many people are going to give us questions today. Uh, so CJ already did from last week. I'm going to go, I'm going to be a pessimist and say two, that we're going to get two questions. Who else wants to give a prediction? So far, you're half right. We just had a question come in. So. Yeah, right there. <laughs> yeah, so, so anybody kind of concede that my number is right or somebody want to go lower or higher? Well, if we go lower, then you're probably going to be wrong. So I'll go higher. We'll say, we'll say, we'll say four. All right. Anybody else? I'll, I'll split the difference and say three. There you go. All right. Let's go to our question there. Yeah, so Danielle asked, uh, how can we explain the existence of a merciful, loving, all-powerful God to someone when they claim his quote-unquote absence uh, or worse pr uh, purported indifference? and large-scale of evil events, i.e. the Holocaust? I'd like to begin with that. I, I really think that Romans 8, verse 20 is one of the more significant verses uh, on, on this type of thing. Um, and I'd like to begin by posing this. I think for a lot of people, for a lot of people, their idea of God is a little bit like their idea 
of Santa Claus or the idea, their, the idea of their grandfather. Or a vending machine. Yeah. And it's, it's supposed to give you what you want. You know, you, you go to grandpa's house and he's, he gives you a quarter. You know, he gives you a ride on the horse, lets you ride on the tractor, whatever. And, and that's, that's great. Um, and so when people don't get what they want, then they question the existence of a God because their idea of God is that God is to make sure that things happen right for us. Well, in each of the parables that we just saw, what was the message in those parables for people that are being disobedient in particular? Destruction is coming. Yeah, destruction and judgment. Um, and so a lot of people can understand that. Okay, there was somebody doing something evil so I can see why they had things. But one of the problems that causes people a lot of grief and question is they see bad things happen to people that aren't evil. And so people react differently to life. How did Job's friends react to the evil that befell Job? They, they assumed that, well, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. So when terrible things happen to Job with no apparent reason they assume well job you're hiding something you must have done something evil for these evil things to happen to you and job is convinced of the opposite he says i haven't done anything i've been faithful to god i've been righteous and the, and the book introduces job as a righteous man and uh job blames god and says god you're yeah. not being fair so you're not being just in the book, right uh and in the book terrible things happen to job but it's not because he was terrible. And does Job ever have it explained to him in the book, as far as we know, uh, why those things happened to him? He not never got the answer, nope. Right, but what did Job do? When all these things happened to him and his wife says, curse God and die, what does Job do? Well, he never cursed God and he humbled himself and recognized who God was. Who am I? The question you. Yes. And especially at the end, because he does have a lot of questions in the middle, but then he's reminded who God is and God's kind of message at the end is. Well, that's what I meant. In, in the middle he did, but when he actually got before God, like he said, shut my mouth. Who am I? Right, right, right. And, and in the beginning he said, you know, I came into the world with nothing. I'll go out with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hmm. So just as Job in the middle of that doesn't know what's going on. And at the end of that may not have known what was going on. Sometimes there's things that will befall us and shake us and tragedies will happen. Let me tell you, tragedies will happen. Not everybody faces the same tragedies, but if you have never had tragedy in your life, it's because you haven't gotten to the tragedies in your life that are going to come. Uh, every married couple, that loves each other and stays together, unless they die at the same time, what's going to happen? Somebody's gonna become a widow or somebody's gonna become a widower. Uh, tragic things happen in life. So let's take a look at this passage in Romans chapter eight. Um, it you wanna says, repeat the question though, as you get into that, repeat the question. Please uh, Yeah, is uh, how can we explain the existence of a merciful, loving, all-powerful God to someone when they claim his absence or worse, purported indifference in large-scale evil events like the Holocaust, for example? All right. 
So uh, let's let's begin here. So we're talking about suffering, and thanks for having that question repeated, Drew. Let's work our way through here. What's Paul's point? Somebody read it and just sum up Paul's point in verse 18 of Romans 8. He says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Um, and so his, his point as he gets going in this is just kind of starting at the, at the top layer level before we start looking in detail at all the suffering. The things that happen in this world they're not, you know, uh, there's bad, but when you compare the bad to the good that will be, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Uh, he makes a similar point in Second Corinthians chapters four and five, where right. he, he talks about, you know, our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he considers that, you know, the, the eternal weight of glory is way, you know, far greater than all the sufferings that we're facing. Uh, Drew. Uh, those words in, 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 uh, Romans 8, 18 are not just words. Can you explain what he's referring to in his sufferings? All right. Well, Paul, for instance, talks about his sufferings. Uh, let's, let's take 2 Corinthians that Jonathan just referred to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he enumerates some of the sufferings he had been through personally at that time. Somebody will stay here on the screen in Romans 8, but somebody just kind of enumerate for us. What were some of the things he had gone through in Second Corinthians 11? I mean, he'd, he'd been beaten, uh, I think he ends up saying countless times. Uh, some of the things he says there are, um, you know, five times I received at the hands of the Jews for the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles. I mean, he just, he goes on and on. And He's no stranger to suffering. Yeah, being imprisoned and that type of thing. And back in 2 Corinthians 4, which is a parallel passage with Romans 8, he said, but our light affliction, hmm. you know, if I've gone through a tenth of what Paul went through, I think I might be singing, you know, woe is me. But he says, our light affliction, which is for the moment, works in, more see this this glory to come and so he it, it just because uh, he says i don't look at the things that are seen but the things that are not seen so like in philippians he's he's bound he's a prisoner um he's got some people trying to harm him that should be his brethren and he may be executed but those are temporary things he looks beyond that to the guards learning of his stand in Christ, other people hearing about Christ, regardless of the motive uh, of the bearer of the news. And if they kill me, I get to go be with Christ. And he ends chapter one in Philippians saying, we've been called not just to believe, but also to suffer. And so we need to understand that the Bible doesn't say you're not going to suffer. It says we're called to believe and suffer. So back to Romans 8. I consider the suffering of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. And then let's look at verse 20. What was creation subjected to? Futility. I mean, we yeah. touched on this last week, I think, when we did our introduction and overview of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Vanity of vanities. Um, you know, the curses come in and creation is subjected to, to vanity, to futility. Yeah. 
And as the wealthy king talks about all his great accomplishments, one of the things that really frustrates him is he's going to going to die. He's going to leave it to who knows who. And like everybody else, he's going to die. And he sees futility. Well, what biblical point does this go back to? Where, where was creation subjected to vanity futility? Genesis 3. I mean, the, the curse is the result of sin was the ground's going to bear thorns and thistles. There's going to be pain in childbirth. You're taken from dust and to dust, you're going to return. All right. And those penalties were placed on Adam and Eve and humanity at large. Suffering was imposed. Creation was subjected to futility, to vanity. Not willingly did Eve think, boy, when I have a child, I'd like it to be much more painful. Did Adam think, oh, this garden's too nice. What I wouldn't give for some brambles and thorns. No. It's not that they were wanting these curses. Why were they placed? God put them there. Yeah. Why would he do it? It's, it's, a, temporary, it's a temporary state of things. Yes. And it says at the end of verse 20, creation is subjected to fertility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to that fertility in hope. Mm. Hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it, God all, all along has wanted a relationship with people and he's wanted people to want a relationship with them. And I think it, it's oftentimes that whenever you face questions like this, it's, it's really interesting um, in trying to explain God and apparent injustice with God. Um, all, people will, will maybe see like, for example, this, that God seems to not care. He seems to be absent. He seems to be, you know, indifferent to all of the suffering and things that are going on. But if you put yourself in God's shoes, that's a helpful, I think, exercise sometimes in reading through the prophets or reading through the Old Testament, how God is dealing with Israel time and time again, God is mistreated. He's left, you know, on the side of the road. He's, he's not cared about by Israel until Israel has a problem. <laughs> And then Israel is like, oh, God, help us, please. You know, you know, where are you? We need you, you know, that kind of thing. But if they're fine, don't even acknowledge God. Don't even. And how would you feel if that was you? Uh, and the prophet spent a lot of time talking about how God feels in those situations, how it, it hurts him. He, he doesn't enjoy that, but he doesn't he doesn't become indifferent. He still cares. He still wants Israel to to love him and help him or ask for help from him. But I mean. I think it's, it's unfair in some ways to expect so much out of God when we expect so little out of ourselves. There's, I want to give a, an analogy. It, it, we as human beings are pretty good at being selfish and arrogant, especially when things are going our way. Sometimes we hold on to being selfish and arrogant even when things aren't going our way. But the analogy is this. I want you to, and there would have been, in history, many people like this. Here's a man and a woman, they're young, they have a child. The child grows up, he's a boy, he gets an education, he starts accumulating wealth, and he learns some things that his father didn't know. Maybe his father was a farmer, but he goes to college. Maybe he goes to university. Maybe he goes to Harvard. Maybe he starts a dot com. Maybe he, you know, he becomes wealthy and 
he views his father as insignificant and small and not important to him. And his parents are maybe in an assisted living, their health is in decline. And maybe he, you know, sends some money to send something to help them out now and then. Maybe once a year, he goes by and visits them. What's his view of his father? Does he believe he has a father? Yes. Does he realize he came from his father? Yes. Does he feel particularly indebted to his father? He feels superior to his father. He doesn't, is, you know, he got from what his father he needed way back then, but now look what he has accomplished. Now that's very different than if his father was in a position of power and he was floundering. And there's a parable about that. Yeah, the prodigal son. Prodigal son. Yeah, yeah. And when he's not floundering, when he takes daddy's money and runs away and is partying hardy and everything, is that when he comes to his senses? No, he has to hit rock bottom. Yeah, and was there some futility and vanity and stuff in hitting rock bottom? Yep. There was a famine. A famine causes suffering, and it caused suffering for him. And he ends up, think about this, he ends up, a Jewish boy ends up being jealous of pigs. You see that? You know, I wish I had it as good as the pigs. And he comes to himself and realizes, my, I have sinned against my father. My father is, I, I don't deserve to be a son. Humbly, let me just go back and be a servant. He had the right attitude. Now, the father in mercy gives him more than that and treats him as a son. But he had the right attitude in coming back. It was suffering that set him free from his bondage of corruption and obtained the freedom of glory and becoming a child again. And when everything is going well, we can get really cocky and arrogant and suffering, it's, it strengthens us, it teaches us lessons, and it reminds us that we're not in charge of everything. Stephen. I think some of Danielle's question Stephen. goes back to not just, can y'all hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, I think that some of Danielle's question goes back to not just uh, suffering because we've been foolish or we've been arrogant, but the, the large scale right. evil, for example, the Holocaust uh, of innocent people. Right. And the question of is God, where is, where is God? Where's his absence, indifference? You know, it, does he care? Does he see? And one of the things that I think is really important to note as we talk about, I mean, this is obviously a huge question uh, of ages old, you know, human suffering, innocent suffering, is that God entered into the story. Um, he, he did not, he's not just up on a throne somewhere in heaven, looking down and kind of like, oh, well, looks like that's tough down there. Good luck. But in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, deity becomes human and enters into a life of suffering i mean isaiah 53 calls him a man of sorrows acquainted with grief lives a perfect life uh we talk about innocent suffering there's really only one adult at least who's innocently suffered and that's jesus i mean all of us have sinned and suffered for those sins on one level or another he, he had no done no evil nor was deceit found in his mouth 
and yet he was reviled, he was afflicted, he was abused, and and he weeps with us. I mean, we were just talking about John 11 the other week, Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And it's so important for us to see that Jesus is not indifferent to our suffering, even though it is a temporary suffering. You're talking about, you know, Romans 8, there's hope. This is not going to end. There's, there's something much bigger. There's something unseen. But even in the moment, Jesus is weeping with Mary and the others at the tomb of Lazarus. He's not indifferent to our pain. And you read the Psalms and see how people cried out to God in the midst of their pain or even national pain, things that were going on on a bigger level and how God heard the cries of his people in Egypt uh, when, when they were killing the baby boys. Um, he heard the cries of his people when, they, when Herod was killing the baby boys, when Jesus was born. When there are mass killings and, and innocent little babies are being killed, God hears the cries of those who turn to him and is not indifferent because Jesus came here to suffer and die to redeem us from all that. Jonathan. And going along with that, you mentioned some of the Psalms. One Psalm that I think is really powerful in uh, this area, Psalm 56, um, where David is talking about, you know, some of the the severe persecutions that he's been facing, not, not because he did anything wrong, and David certainly faced a lot of suffering for things that he did that was wrong, but this is just people were attacking him. Wicked people were taking advantage of him, injuring him, all of his enemies were surrounding him, and in the middle of that psalm, in Psalm 56, in verse 8, talking to God, he says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? Then my enemy will call, will turn back in the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid, what can man do to me? So David acknowledges that in the middle of all the suffering, God's aware, God knows what I'm going through, and he's for me, and I trust in him, and he cares for me, and he loves me, and then realizes at the end of it all, yeah, man is attacking me, evil is happening, there's a lot of injustice and things that are going on in David's life. But in verse 11, at the end, he says, what can man do to me? It really reminds me of what Jesus says of, you know, fear not the one who can destroy your body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. God is in control of our souls. No one else is. All like the Holocaust, terrible, awful event. But God is in control of those people's souls and can protect their souls or any other event um, that happens, any other um, really destructive thing that happens. The physical can be really hard, but God's aware that that suffering is there. He cares for it and that he's in control. So the idea that he is doing nothing or absent or indifferent just because the physical is getting hard, I think is just incorrect. Um, he is working and protecting and saving his people still constantly, if that makes sense. That idea. Also, the um, I, I'm not going to state you know, what God has done or hasn't done, you know, behind the veil. Uh, what does Paul say regarding the fact that when Philemon's servant, Omenesimus, ran away to Rome, he ends up in contact with Paul and he becomes a Christian. Paul described that as what? Perhaps. It was yeah, perhaps. That's why this worked out this way. But, I, and, and before I say this, I want to say, you know, the, the suffering that went on in the Holocaust, uh, it's 
just incredible and the huge injustices and every everything else and it went on for a few years it was just horrible but before somebody says god didn't do anything about it what did hitler get away with it did the nazis get to keep doing it no the hitler was defeated the 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 uh the concentration camps were shut down. Many had suffered, many perished, but it stopped and people were rescued and people were delivered. And I mean, throughout my life, Drew, how many times have you, you know, read about another Nazi war criminal being caught and found and brought to trial in that type of thing? Yeah. So, you know, when people say, God didn't do anything, well, what if Hitler, had won the war. What if, you know, his plan had succeeded and he was still getting to do, you know, his followers were still getting to do all that. It didn't. Um, and another point I want to make is that when suffering happens, it happens on a broader scale than uh, Stephen was bad today, so he doesn't get any rain. Jonathan was good today, he gets some rain. Uh, a nation can get, you know, be given a drought or something in, in the story of the prodigal son. The son is suffering in part because there's a drought. Was it only him in that far country that was in a drought? No. And Jesus says rain comes on the just and the unjust. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, are they good guys or bad guys? Good guys. Good. Do they end up being taken away captive from their native land and from their family? Yep, along with the others. And those type of things happen. And, that, um, and, that, and, those and particular... another thing, final point I want to make is this. When... I'm sorry, Scott, in those particular cases, is my audio on? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's a delay with Scott's audio. Oh, okay. Carry on. Okay, but in those particular cases, um, a lot the, the evil that's occurring is brought about by human beings. And so a lot of times people want to blame God for it right off the bat but it's other humans that are doing it to right. other humans right. and they will face the, the, the wrath of God. They'll face the judgment of God. We don't see all the things like you had said going on in the, behind the veil, but that's, the, you can't, someone said, well, why didn't God just stop that? Mm -hmm. Well then in order to stop that evil that human beings are doing, you have to take away free will. And you, you, you hit on something really important there. That's, I think, what people are saying. Why didn't God stop it? We, we look at the world and we see something terrible happen over there. And from our point of view, it's terrible. And it is. And we say, why didn't God stop it? You know, your grandmother gets uh, T-boned and killed by a drunk driver. Why didn't God stop that drunk driver? You know, a... Uh, 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 12-year-old child is hit by a, a stray bullet from a, some drug dealers in a shootout. Why didn't God stop that drug dealer from shooting in that direction? And we could wish that he had, and we don't know how many times he did, but we, it's coming from a thing, those things are bad, God should have stopped it. Here's the problem. Is there going to come a time in history, according to scripture, that God is going to stop the evil. Yeah. Yes, there is. 
is he only going to stop the Hitlers and the drunk drivers and the gangbangers? No. no, he is also dropping the hammer on the arrogant, on the selfish, on the gossips, on the pornography viewers, on the liars, on those that neglect their children, on those that cheat on their spouses, of those that engage in bitterness and jealousy. In other words, what we're asking for, do you remember in Amos when it said, Amos warns him, why are you asking for the day of the Lord to come? It is going to be bad news for you when it comes. We're kind of like the fellas in prison that are not in maximum security because we're not as bad as the worst criminals there complaining that the worst criminals haven't been executed yet. <laughs> in God's view, you know, when judge, the Bible says God's going to, in Revelation 6, the souls under the altar are crying out for what? For vengeance. Yeah, for justice. How long? How long? But they're told. Wait a little while. And there's going to be some more suffering. But the Bible says eventually there's going to be a day of judgment and accountability. And, in, and instead of me worrying about why is anything unjust here, what we ought to do instead is submitting ourselves to the mercy and, and justice of God to be prepared for that, Stephen. And all this, I think, goes back to a point we were making earlier that we just have to have humility. We do not have the full picture as God does. And the same God who allows suffering, allows terrible things to happen. Um, you see it over and over in scripture. He allows righteous people to suffer, but he's able to bring good from that suffering. And the center of all of it is the cross. If you look at the cross of Jesus, it's, it's the greatest monument to human injustice, human wickedness, human hatred and selfishness and arrogance. And all of it was poured out on Jesus. He, he's there in the midst of our suffering with us and is crying out to God. And we might say, did God deliver Jesus? Yes and no. <laughs> did he keep Jesus from dying? No. No, he did not. And we might say, why didn't he, why didn't he keep him from dying? Because he had a purpose. And not every death has the same purpose as Jesus' death, of course. Jesus was dying for all of our sins, for my sins. But to the people there on at Golgotha that day, that would have looked like a senseless, brutal event. Where is God on this day? And God was right there on that day and was able to bring the salvation of the world through what looked like something senseless and random and terrible and evil. And it was evil. And God punished those who did that, who did not repent. But what's just interesting to me is, again, we have to have some humility and say, when, when terrible things happen, we can't come forward and say, well, I know exactly what God's doing here. And I know that he has this person. We can't always say that. We may not know what's going on, as Scott said, you know, behind the veil. There are things that only God knows. But we can say the same God who sent his own son to hang on a tree for me 
is the God who can bring all things and make all things right in the end. And I trust him in this moment. I'd like to end on a personal note with this. Um, my oldest son, Adam, died in a river accident. Um, and Stephen was a roommate with Adam and Danielle in our audience was a, a friend of Adam. And one of the things that helped me through that was it, it was a Sunday afternoon that, that Adam, the, the river was flooded. Uh, he didn't realize how much the hydraulics and the undertow had increased that day. And near some rapids, he, he got in trouble. And, um, but it was an area that when the river wasn't so flooded, he had swum before for exercise. It was Sunday afternoon. But one of the things that helped me when I went down there and we were waiting as they were looking uh, for his body, somebody told me the discussion in the church, in the Bible class at church that morning. And the teacher had said, basically this question, he said, when one of your professors says, you know, how could a good God let bad things happen to good people? When a professor says that, what are you going to say? And they told me it was Adam who raised his hand and he said, I like to tell my friends that this world is like a broken down or decaying house. And my God takes care of his people and gets them out of it. Now, Adam didn't want to die that day and he was struggling to get out. You know how much I didn't want him to die that day. But his faith in the Lord in that helped me immensely. And I'm so thankful for my son and I respect him so much. And I respect him because of who he was. And who he was was because of his love and respect for the Lord and his attention to the word. Amen. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you all for, um, for your discussion today. Thank you to our audience for the question. Um, and we want to uh, have our audience again, uh, let you all know, uh, we're happy to take some more questions. We, we want your questions. That's why we do this, um, to help people to uh, get some biblical answers to some questions. And there are a lot of difficult things in life, a lot of hard things in life, a lot of hard questions to answer. Um, but God has provided us with his word to help us to get through those and to uh, put our hope in him and answer those problems. So thank you all again. And uh, if you have some more questions, you can submit those to BibleQuest.tv, BibleQuest.org, uh, and we'll be happy to get to those next week. Scott, go ahead. Yeah, just real quick, one other thing that helped me and it might help somebody else. Look at Acts chapter 12. There were three disciples of the 12 that were closest with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. In Acts chapter 12, Peter's in danger of being killed and God intervenes and saves him. Why did, but you know what? How does Acts 12 start off? James, James is killed. Yeah. If God let that happen to James, it can happen to somebody else. And does that mean Peter's not gonna suffer during his life? No, no it was just delayed. Jesus told him he was going to die a martyr's death as well. And Paul tells us we're, we're called to suffer. That's part of this life, Drew. 
I just want before you close this out, Jonathan, remind people if, if you came in late and you didn't hear the whole program, uh, our broadcast will be posted on our website, BibleQuest.org, uh, within 24 hours, so people can go there and listen to the whole broadcast. But I also want to add in that it's um, we seem to get good. Uh, we have a good conversation when people ask questions, and that's what BibleQuest was originally uh, designed to do. Is the, invoke questions from the audience and so we want to encourage you please on any topic any biblical topic please go to biblequest.org submit your questions of, or during the live program as today text them in but we really look forward to people talking about this thank you and danielle thank you good to good to have you tuning in thanks for the very important question thanks a lot and also with that, just, just to clarify what Drew just said, Daniel asked a good question, so we'll clarify it for the rest of the audience. At the beginning, um, she asked, are the questions supposed to be strictly related to a specific Bible passage, or can we ask some hard questions that we're hoping to find the Bible answers to? And the answer to that is both. <laughs> uh, if you have a specific Bible question, Bible passage, we're happy to go through that, the text, and talk about that, or a more general question. Um, we'll, we'll like to have those also. The harder the questions, the harder the questions, the more we like them. Yeah. Thank you all. We'll see you all next week.